Welcome back to another episode of this untitled series that Nathan Favero and I are working on. Nathan, how are you, buddy? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. I uh, <clears throat> survived a nice weekend, and I'm hoping that my voice actually is captured in this podcast because I don't know <laughs> if you saw or uh, caught it, but when we posted the last one, it turns out I was silenced. <laughs> Yes, yes. We do not want to be in the business of silencing. <laughs> so last time we had a really nice conversation uh, with uh, Bill Resch, who's a friend and colleague of ours. Um, and this time it's just going to be the two of us uh, chatting through, so no additional guests. But we wanted to tack another uh, uh, issue that's in the news that has to do with administration and has to do with governance. And last time we had talked about some of the consequences of the U.S. Uh, government shutdown and maybe took a different lens than <clears throat> we haven't typically seen, which was trying to think about what were the consequences for the workers within uh, the federal government and the overall ability of the federal government to do its job in the face of repeated shutdowns. Um, today, um, we're going to talk about another issue at the federal level. And to uh, give you a little bit of context, we're going to be talking about uh, declarations of national emergencies by U.S. President. And as you may know, uh, this has been in the news. The current president issued a proclamation on February 15th. Uh, it was titled, and you can we'll attach this as a document in the podcast, but it's from the White House's uh, webpage, whitehouse.gov. And the proclamation is titled Presidential Proclamation on Declaring a National Emergency Concerning the Southern Border of the United States. And probably unsurprising to you if you're listening to this uh, podcast that this provoked a little bit of a, of a furor um, and um, maybe not. <laughs> That's generous. That's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and one of the uh, responses to this has been something that was posted today, actually, which is a joint declaration of former United States government officials. There's about 50 officials, a little more than 50 officials. These include Madeleine Albright, John O'Brennan, uh, James Clapper, Ryan Crocker, who is the dean of the Bush School, and I started working at the Bush School, whose uh, expertise I value highly. Um, Chuck Hagel, um, John Perry. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, part of why this document is notable, this isn't the first time we've had something like this, but it is um, includes prominent figures from both sides of the aisle, that is Democrats as well as Republicans. And so it shows some measure of bipartisan opposition to uh, this this national emergency declaration. Although, I mean, again, that's not super unusual, just given Trump has received a lot of criticism from both sides of the aisle among the sort of uh, national security establishment on many issues. Yeah, and they highlight here, just uh, for everyone's kind of broad context, um, they essentially, on page six of the document, of the document that we'll put in the podcast, 
It says on February 15, 2019, the president declared a national emergency for the purpose of diverting appropriated funds from previously designated uses to build a wall along the southern border. And then, then they're quite blunt. They say, we are aware of no emergency that remotely justifies such a step. The president's actions are at odds with the overwhelming evidence in the public record, including the administration's own data and estimates. We have lived and worked through national emergencies, which I want to I know uh, I want to get to what some of these other national emergencies have looked like in the past. And we support the president's power to mobilize the executive branch to respond quickly in genuine national emergencies. But under no plausible assessment of the evidence, is there a national emergency today that entitles the president to tap into funds appropriated for other proposes, excuse me, for other purposes to build a wall at the southern border? This is the closing of this kind of summary of it. To our knowledge, the president's assertion of a national emergency here is unprecedented and that he seeks to address a situation that is one that has been enduring rather than one that has arisen suddenly. Two, that in fact has improved over time rather than deteriorated. Three, by reprogramming billions of dollars in funds in the face of clear congressional intent to the contrary. And four, with assertions that are rebutted not just by the public record, but by his agency's own official documents and statements. This is a pretty serious rebuke. Yeah, yeah. And um, one one point that they make about how this is not an issue that has arisen suddenly, I think will be uh, really key and something we probably want to return to in a little bit. So, Yeah, so one of the things we were, you and I were just talking about before we started was uh, to not get too lost uh, in focusing on this one presidential emergency, but it would be good to talk about what is the general legal framework in which this is operating to know, you know, I think when you have such a, an extinguished, distinguished groups, <laughs> distinguished group, not extinguished, a distinguished group of experts that uh, have served under um, uh, bipartisan administrations. I mean, this is the, it's a pretty professional kind of smack in the face, I think, to the president. But what do we know, or maybe you could kind of start and give us a little bit of guidance on what is this supposed, when is this power supposed to be used? What is some of the mm -hmm. framework for its adoption in the past? And is this really different as these, uh, as these former officials claim it is? I mean, how much of that do, uh, would you like to start with? Yeah, so I'll, I guess I'll, I'll lay out a couple, I mean, this is not an area that I've been well acquainted with. I'm sort of getting up to speed like most Americans on this as it's unfolding. Mm -hmm. um, but a few things I've learned in the in recent weeks that I'll just lay out there that I think are a little bit helpful. So one thing is that the, um, the Constitution doesn't talk directly at all about emergency powers, um, but it does talk about sort of the executive branch having um, a, a lot of authority over national security topics in particular. Um, and um, I think the, the framer sort of envisioned the, um, the executive branch as being a little bit more nimble and able to respond to things quickly in the moment, whereas the, the legislative branch Congress was envisioned as being a bit more deliberative and slow. So um, that, that creates part of the, the backdrop for this. Um, but the big piece of legislation um, on this is the National Emergencies Act, which was passed in 1976. 
And there were national emergencies that were declared before that time, but there wasn't necessarily a uniform process for how to do them. It wasn't necessarily clear exactly how these were supposed to work. Um, and so this legislation helped to clarify some of that. Now, from my understanding, what this act does not do is it does not declare, it does not put parameters around um, exactly when a national secure, a national emergency can be declared or what the grounds for declaring one are. Instead, it's more about process. If the president is going to declare a national emergency, these are some of the steps and some of the parameters around that, but not necessarily saying when he can or can't, which is sort of, in this case, <laughs> the arguments are not about process. What do you do once the national emergency is declared? It's do we have grounds to issue a national emergency in the first place? And this legislation, I don't think, does much to clarify that, um, which is part of the reason that some people think that uh, that the president has a good chance of of it holding up in court. I mean, there are lawsuits that have already been filed. There will inevitably be more that are filed. Um, but some people think that the president has a good chance of being able to um, stand up in court that he does have grounds to declare a national emergency because Congress has never really clarified what those grounds would be to declare a national emergency or not declare one. Um, another, for a moment, go ahead. Yeah, so I, I just wanted to highlight, I, you know, I did the overview of, the, of, this, of this document, but that makes sense in the context of, if you go on in this uh, national emergency joint declaration, they go on to give a lot of evidence that, would, that one would try to provide as counter evidence to it actually being an emergency. And so what the strategy seems to be in this letter, uh, other than it being a bipartisan letter, is a direct kind of uh, uh, consensus among a lot of experts as to reasons why this particular case isn't a national emergency. So I just wanted to share a couple of those. Um, uh, for example, they highlight illegal border crossings are near 40 year lows. Uh, there's no documented terrorist or national security emergency at the southern border. Uh, there is no emergency related to violent crime at the southern border, providing kind of evidence with uh, criminal statistics. There's no human or drug trafficking emergency that can be addressed by a wall at the southern border. This proclamation will only exacerbate the humanitarian concerns that do exist at the southern border. Redirecting funds for the claimed national emergency will undermine U.S. national security and foreign policy interests. The situation at the border does not require the use of the armed forces, and the wall is unnecessary to support the use of the armed forces. And finally, there is no basis for circumventing the appropriations process with a declaration of national emergency at the southern border. So they're also there not trying to make an argument about processes once this power is granted. And they even say at the beginning they're very much in favor of those processes when a real emergency is in place. But here is a list of evidence why we believe this case is a little unique and why we don't think it constitutes a, a national emergency. That kind of that kind of fits with exactly the, the question that you were presenting. Uh, the first question really is, is this a national emergency? And there's not apparently not a lot of criteria on this. Yeah, yeah. Not not codified in law, at least, right? I mean, there's they're implying in that letter that there are criteria that we should be taking into account, right? Is this something unexpected? Is it something that's getting worse, right? All these these kinds of things. Is there a crisis down there? Um, but they, those aren't, the law never says you have to use any of those things to decide whether or not to declare a national emergency, even though I think common sense would suggest that 
you should take into account those kinds of things yeah, yeah. <laughs> when deciding whether also, to declare an emergency. When announcing it, uh, also when announcing it, not saying that um, you could you could have waited. You were just you wanted to do this quickly. Um, you, you could wait, but um, but you just didn't feel like waiting. You wanted to do this quickly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty pretty incredible. Um, the way that he continues to undermine his own legal cases through his public statements. It's brazen. You know, not to, I don't want to go down this path, but I always think some of the conversations around collusion are really interesting. Um, and I think we'll be learning more about some of the stuff as the Mueller report's coming, coming out. But one of my favorite examples of him just being as, you know, very brazen is in the debates, in the debate season, just kind of appealing directly to the Russians and saying, if you if you can get these emails, that would be great, and you should release them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's so brazen sometimes. Anyways, yes. you're know, giving me a little bit more context for um, for national emergency declarations. Yeah, yeah. So one one example of of what this law does do, um, that this national emergencies act, is that it says that Congress can overrule this, um, and so we're likely to see votes in the the coming days in Congress on this um the there, there's a lot of people are skeptical that there would be a veto proof majority to overturn it so we don't it's not necessarily clear that this would be overruled um but but that's the kind of thing that this law does now what this law doesn't do is it doesn't say these are the things that the president can do once there's a national emergency to a large extent instead there are scattered throughout hundreds of different statutes hundreds of different laws that are about different policy areas, um, there are sections that say, if a national emergency is declared, then the president can do this. And so um, essentially this one law, the National Emergencies Act sort of says, here's what declaring a national emergency is. And then there's a whole bunch of other laws that have been passed at various times that sort of say, that are unlocked once a national emergency is declared, right? And so in this case, that's where some of the, the legal argument, it sounds to me like it's a little bit shakier, is not necessarily that the president president can't declare a national emergency on this issue, but instead it's really unclear if the statute that he's saying lets him reallocate funds um, to the border is really saying that he can reallocate funds for that specific purpose. And specifically, um, I, I, I'm not going to get too much into the details, and I don't know too many of the details, but it's something about how this money that's been appropriated by Congress, Congress said, we you know, pass a funding bill and we're saying that we're gonna spend this money on military construction purposes. Um, this law says, well, in the case of a national emergency, the president has some freedom to be able to change how money in this pot is gonna be spent. But it's not clear that it can go be spent on a border wall, even though it could be spent, for example, for a new military base, if there was a war that, that started and and they needed to, to reinforce or, or put together a new military base or something like that. My understanding is that would be non-controversial, that the president could certainly do that under the statute, um, but it's not clear that he can actually put that money towards a wall. So that's where he may face some legal trouble, is not in saying whether or not he can declare a national emergency, but instead interpreting this other statute that says, you know, one of many statutes, this is what you can do once you've declared a national emergency. Yeah, this, uh, <clears throat> to go back to the actual proclamation excuse me, which will include, again, in the description of this episode, uh, under the proclamation, there is then what the president's proclaiming, he's actually directing the bureaucracy to do. And 
for example, Section 1 says, the Secretary, Secretary of Defense or the Secretary of each relevant military department, as appropriate and consistent with applicable law, um, shall order as many units or members of the ready reserve to active duty as the Secretary uh, concerned. And the Secretary's discretion determines to be appropriate to assist and support the activities of the Secretary of Homeland Security at the southern border. Um, and so, and here it says uh, again in section two, the Secretary of Defense, Secretary of the Interior, Secretary of Homeland Security, and subject to the discretion of the Secretary of Defense, the Secretaries of the Military Department shall take all appropriate actions consistent with applicable law to use or support the use of the authorities herein invoked, including, if necessary, the transfer and acceptance of jurisdiction over borderlands. So in both of these kind of major sections, one of the things that it highlights, you know, to your point is it relies on the applicability of other laws out there and what can actually legally be done, even with this wider range of discretion being given, it still has to fit in with other legal precedent. Yeah, yeah. And there's lots of things we can imagine that a president might want to be able to do in the case of a national emergency, right? You might want to be able to, you know, enact a curfew if we're worried about local safety, um, might want to be able to enact martial law and do certain things with troops, you know, policing locally or, or patrolling locally, um, might want to use troops like in a national disaster, be able to use military resources to transport supplies to, you know, a disaster zone, a hurricane zone, something like that. So there's lots of different things that, that one could want to do under a national emergency, which is why there's all these different statutes saying, here's some different things that the president can do in the case of a national emergency. In this case, the specific power that he's trying to use through the national emergency is reallocating funds. These funds that were supposed to go towards um, military construction projects are instead, he wants to use them instead for for the, the border wall. So the, the basic piece of thing that he's directing to do in this case is reallocate funds. And the question isn't really, can he declare a national emergency? It's conditional on him declaring a national emergency can those funds be allocated for those purposes? Is it is it legal even within this framework? Yeah, that's that's at least the legal question that I tend to think is more likely to rule against him. On the question of can he declare a national emergency, a lot of commentators I'm listening to are saying, yeah, he probably can, though there's there's he might not be able to to use those powers in this exact way. So um I have a question for you, Justin. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we may we can riff on a little bit. Um, why would we have national emergency powers in the first place? Should the president, why would we want the president to be able to declare a national emergency? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. So um, it's a good question. I was thinking about this as uh, uh, once you mentioned it to me, it gave me a little bit of a heads up, which I appreciated. Um, <laughs> So I'm uh, suspicious of too much centralized power, just in general, as like a dispersion of power. Um, and I think the the more we can democratize and have multiple people in on decision making and choices, uh, making choices, I think is is better. Um, but it seems also clear that you need a central executive. Uh, whether it's an individual like we have or some type of committee, but that you need a central executive that can, in times of real emergencies, move faster than 
Congress can move. Um, but um, so I think this would, and I would think that national emergencies uh, would be good for kind of national disasters, which there's some type of, of uh, event that is catastrophic that we need to mobilize different resources for. I think a, uh, an invasion, an actual honest to God invasion um, could be a time in which you would want the president to have additional powers to restrict uh, restrict freedoms of daily life um, and to you know usurp the normal process for implementation. Um, but I would you know in general want these to uh, be very limited. The other the other way in which they have been used in the past that seems like a good use is directing um, directing aid abroad in uh, kind of protecting national security interests. Um, and so some of those reasonings um, seem like good. I mean, some of those uh, contexts seem like good times in which um, you could use uh, national emergency powers. Now, I mean, you know, I think even granting the national emergency powers, you know, what does that give range to do is, a uh, is the other question of this, like when should the president have these powers is a question. And, and my gut says as, as few domains as necessary, <laughs> um, then the, the, what, what freedoms and what things about the ways of life should be allowed to be restricted. You know, you, uh, we we're sharing one of the uh, an article with me from the Atlantic as we were getting to talk about this, and one of the suggestions from that article, which we can post as well, is that, for example, the president could seize control of, of U.S. internet traffic, impeding access to certain websites, and ensuring that internet searches return pro-Trump content as the top results. Um, so, like, you know, my mind usually goes to like civil freedoms like freedom of speech, uh, freedom of association, freedom of protest, freedom of ideas. And I, you know, traditionally think about those out in kind of out in the community, out in physical spaces. But uh, one I hadn't really thought about is what role, uh, given the amount of information and data flow that we have on the internet now, that's even a more, arguably a more powerful tool for the central executive to be able to manipulate. Um, and so I'm, I'm really concerned about uh, controlling of access to information. I, that one seems like a tool uh, that I would have some concern with. And of course, you know, uh, and the, the National Emergencies Act, I think, is set up to protect this, but any kind of flagrant uh, violations of civil liberties um, in the name of kind of uh, a national emergency, uh, particularly in an era where we look around and there's a, a kind of a rise in fascism, those things are really concerning to me. Did I get at your question at all? I feel like I just rambled on. For yeah. <laughs> no, no. I, yeah, I, I think that's great. I think, I mean, one to me, one of the key things, I mean, I guess there's, there's two possibilities for what emergency powers can give you. And one of them relates to, um, does it give you the ability to, I guess, like violate certain civil rights or limit certain civil rights that normally people would be granted. Um, and I, I, I suspect that there's some of that. Um, and then the other piece is, does it sort of allow the president to unilaterally be able to do things that he would normally have to do together with Congress? 
Um, and I guess I've been thinking more about that second piece, but I think that that first piece is important too. Um, and is something that definitely comes up when we start thinking about, especially national security risks. And, you know, I mean, the, some of the privacy concerns that have come up out of Snowden revelations and, and different things like that with national security administration, monitoring web traffic and all, and all that. Um, but with that, I, that piece about, um, you know, emergency powers allowing the executive or the president to unilaterally do things that normally he would probably be able to do, but he would have to get Congress on board and pass some sort of law with Congress in order to be able to do them, I guess is the piece that I've been focused on more and I think is, is particularly interesting. I think you've, you've given us some good things to, to think about. Um, I guess to add a couple things to that, it, to me, it seems that it should be designed, you talked about designing it narrowly, and to me, part of that design should be that it should be used in response to something unforeseen, right? Because part of the argument is that the president can act quicker by himself than Congress and the president can act together, right? Um, but if it's something that we can, you know, anticipate five years in advance, or something like that, um, you know, it's an ongoing problem, like they talked about in the, the letter from signed by all, all those people, former National Security Administration people. Um, if, if it's a an ongoing problem, then it seems to me that there's a pretty compelling argument for, well, then Congress and the president should be working on it together. Yeah. Um, and I think where there's arguably a need for this expedited process, right, is when there's something unforeseen, like a natural disaster that you can't predict. Or maybe maybe you can predict that hurricane five days out, but you can't predict it a year out, right? Yeah. Um, or, you know, there's an invasion that you don't foresee or some sort of, you know, a military base is, is under threat that it's not, you know, you didn't foresee. Um, so it seems to me that it, it being something that arises suddenly or is, is can't be foreseen is an important piece and that we might want some flexibility with that. At the same time, I wonder if it has become less necessary at the national level to have emergency powers um, just because it's so easy for Congress to react to things quickly now. You know, yeah. it's not like they're riding into D.C. on horse and buggy or on a train, right? right? And you have to have a month's notice if they're in recess in order to be able to get everyone back in town, right? Today, people fly on a jet and you can have Congress convened in 24 hours um, when they were supposed to be on, on vacation or on recess. Um, that, that's no problem. And so it seems to me that Congress is much more able to react quickly and nimbly. Now, the political will might not be there, um, but I don't think that there's, there's a structural impediment where there might be more of a need for emergency powers, it seems to me, is actually at the state level, where governors um, might need to react to something within their state while Congress or the legislature is not in session, because many legislatures are not full time in the states. And of course, you can call emergency sessions and that sort of thing. Um, but when you have lots of part time legislatures, and like in Texas, I know the legislature only meets every other year unless there's an emergency session. Um, in many other states, they only meet maybe three, four months out of the year. Um, and so since you don't really have a full-time legislature, I think it does become hard for the legislature to react to an unforeseen circumstance. Whereas at the national level, we basically have a full-time Congress. And so it makes a lot more sense to me that, no, they should be working on these problems together it's more common that you you should be having Congress and the president working together to solve whatever crises or issues you're facing. So anyways, those are just some some thoughts that come to mind on, on this. Yeah, I, I hadn't uh, 
surprise, surprise, I went to kind of some of the abstract philosophical reasoning when posed the question. Um, but the point about structure and then what standards we might use when there's an absence of standards, I think is is a really, I don't have thoughts on other than kind of to echo that I like your idea of unforeseen circumstances as a potential um, standard for when it could be used and when it couldn't. Um, and I also like, you know, when, when I was thinking through, uh, through about it, one of the things that I, as I was saying out loud about it being quicker, I had kind of a, a little thought in my head that was, well, actually, you know, we can communicate pretty quickly uh, now. You still have, you have to go through the democratic process, which um, in the political, uh, the political process to, to, to get stuff done, but actually Congress can act pretty fast when it is an agreement on something. Um, and particularly an issue that is ongoing, uh, one that's been around that they've been aware of. And I think you highlight the challenge we're facing, which is the lack of political will um, to address these things. And what does that mean when when we don't have that political will? And I think this is kind of what we get um, when there's a lack of a political will to actually address these issues. Um, you end up with some of these issues that could be re uh, addressed by systematic reform uh, taken on in these kind of patchwork uh national emergency declaration ways when we actually know some strategies to that would help improve national security and we know some strategies that would help with um with the uh, reforming immigration um and so in in thought of that way you know using it in this particular case and in cases that aren't unforeseen in particular um or where congress is incapacitated for some particular reason um it really starts to uh starts to question what's the whole point of the balance of powers if you don't have Congress um, playing a role in, you know, major reform for, you know, if, if we if we go along with the argument that there is an invasion at the southern border that should require congressional approval to, um, or, or should suggest that it's something that's ongoing and it's something that Congress could have wrestled with and come up with, uh, come up and, you know, with an answer with. Yeah, yeah. I was having a conversation with my dad a couple of weeks ago, and he, he mentioned the word crisis. And for me, the difference between trying to distinguish between a crisis and an emergency is really important, right? Because, mm -hmm. I mean, I think we all agree there's an opioid crisis, yeah. right? But to me, that's not a good fit for a national emergency, or it shouldn't be, right? Because it's something that's ongoing. It's not something that, you know, appeared suddenly overnight, and we have to react to it immediately, right? I mean, I think it does require quick action, but it's the kind of thing that can go through the legislative process. Whereas, you know, the wildfires out in California a couple months ago, I think it was a couple months ago now, wasn't it? <laughs> I forget the exact timeline. Um, or, you know, a hurricane. That seems to me the kind of thing where, yeah, you maybe Congress probably is going to need to be involved in some of this stuff because we might need to allocate new funds and, and some of that. But the president doesn't necessarily have to wait until, you know, Congress has drafted legislation and passed it and convened to be able to start moving on some of that stuff. They probably should have some authority through, you know, I mean, and some of that can be done through FEMA, which might not even require a national emergency declaration, right? But it makes sense that something like that, you got to act right away and you weren't able to foresee it. Whereas the, the opioid epidemic, it's certainly a crisis, but it's not an emergency in the sense that it's not, it wasn't, you know, something that just happened overnight without any, any foresight, so.
So how would you, which we talked a little bit about this and um, how do you think about ways to, so we, you had some suggestions there for standards about when an emergency is actually taking place. And one big one being uh, uh, unforeseen circumstances. Um, it, it, so let's say that we agree on when a situation is an emergency. Do you have any thoughts about how we think about which, what powers are available and um, constraining, uh, constraining the discretion of the president and the federal branch if we want to and in what cases? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I do and I don't in the sense that, like, I think that's a really important question. Um, and then on the other hand, I feel like I don't, I, I would, there's so many different powers we could talk about. And I feel like you kind of have to take them one at a time and, and think about them. And obviously you raised some important ones. This Atlantic article that we're going to link to, I think it raises some important ones. Um, but that's where you really get into these, you know, over a hundred different statutes that have outlined different powers and they probably need to be sort of carefully examined one at a time. So I think that is absolutely the right question to ask and it's not one that I'm really prepared to answer. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, it is interesting to think about all the different tools available. I've been doing a little bit of thinking about recently, like, uh, you know, it's one of the reasons why I thought the one, the one in the Atlantic of seizing the internet was interesting is just the array of administrative technological tools um, to uh, that can invade privacy and that can be used as enforcement tools that we didn't have access to before. And that, I mean, to your point, there's all kinds of different tools, not just in the physical world, which I think is where most people's mind go when they start being worried about uh, uh, authoritarian overreach. But these digital tools also play a, a large role in how control is maintained and the type of information that's gathered um, and less relevant in the case that we've been looking at of redirecting funds for the southern border uh, border wall, although I imagine a piece of that would be surveillance capabilities, um, but I, I wouldn't know for sure, of course. <laughs> I don't think anyone does at this point. <laughs> yeah. Are there any other pieces of this that uh, you think that we haven't uh, jumped on that would be good to leave people with as they are aware of the of the considerations about the national emergency at the southern border, what the president has to say, the context of when these could broadly happen, and then what some of these national security experts have to say about it. Yeah, I'll, I'll say there's one other thing I did want to mention, and this is, I mean, we could do a whole podcast on, on this, but um, I think this this links to a broader discussion about the extent to which we rely on norms versus law to kind of run our government and constrain our the power of those that we elect to government. Um, and again, this is getting now really broad, right? We went from Trump's emergency declaration to emergency declarations in general, now to how does democracy work, right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, but I guess one thing I've been thinking about a lot lately is that, you know, the laws that we have on the books are helpful, and I think that they matter, and I think we should carefully consider them, and we should amend them where they don't work, and we should be passing new laws, and we should be trying to simplify them because our laws get too complicated when we just incrementally add more and more and more. Um, so there's lots of things like that that I think are important and that we should care about. But the other piece of this is that we really, the law only works to the extent 
that it's enforced <laughs> to the extent, which often enforcement requires lawsuits and, and things like that. And certain groups might not, um, you know, have the legal power to actually create the lawsuit. So we'll make something happen. You know, here I'm thinking more about something like, you know, equal opportunity stuff in housing or anti-housing discrimination statutes, right? Unless somebody actually brings the lawsuit in a town to enforce that statute um, or the federal government comes in and does some sort of oversight of local governments or, or a, you know, a certain town or something like that. You don't necessarily have that law getting enforced, which means there's not the, the law being there on the books doesn't matter much, right? Yeah. Um, so some of this stuff plays out more, I think, on a local level than where we're talking about, you know, a big national declaration that's in the news. Of course, that's going to get, there's going to be plenty of legal firepower on both sides. <laughs> um, but at any rate, we, we rely a lot on, um, on norms. And one of the things that we see over and over and over again with the Trump presidency is that these norms are sort of being broken and that it's forcing us to revisit these really fundamental issues of how our democracy functions that we hadn't necessarily given a lot of thought to before. And I'm a little bit torn on whether or not we should, in response to these things, go and try to fix all these laws so that, you know, the, the norms are now codified in law so that presidents can't declare it a national emergency over something like the southern border crisis, quote unquote. Um, or if we should say, no, it's the it's the uh, the voters job to punish Trump for breaking the norm to vote him out of office. And we're never going to get all of the laws to cover all of the bad things that a president could do. And the real moral of the story here is elect a better president rather than change the law. Um, and I think that the, I mean, the true answer is that it should be both. This should probably be a wake up call that we need to define some of this stuff with presidential powers around national emergencies better. We need to constrain the presidency a little bit more in that way. And elections have consequences. It's really important who you elect. And we should probably be really careful to try to elect presidents that we think who we think are going to um, you know, respect norms. I mean, there were tons of warnings, you know, Trump refusing to release his, his taxes and tax returns and all this kind of stuff. And we knew on the campaign trail that he wasn't going to respect the norms because he's kept violating them on the campaign trail and kept suggesting that he would. So it's not like this was, you know, like a nefarious, you know, like surprise now that I'm in office, I'm going to start violating norms. We knew this. And so, um, I think maybe it's a, in part, it's on us as voters, um, that, that we ignored uh, the, the fact that he seemed like he was so ready to, to violate norms that we have in government. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I uh, when you start when you mentioned norms versus laws, I was thinking, uh, which just won't surprise you, but uh, about some different arenas of uh, when when the norm is to break the law. What does that mean for the discretion of whoever has the discretion to, to make a decision? So for example, I've been working with some uh, engineers that are working on self-driving trolleys, for example. And when I sat down and talked with the researcher, his comment to me was programming these vehicles to follow the law is easy. Um, it, you can use a combination of GPS and visual sensing and code in you know, what the speed limits are. But the actual problem is people don't uh, drive on the roads and follow all the rules. And those rules that they don't follow are also the same ones that in general aren't enforced. So you can think of like everyone goes five miles an hour, 10 miles an hour over the speed limit, for example. 
And so if you if you're going to code a self-driving vehicle to be on the interstate and you code it to uh, stay under the speed limit, it gets ran off the road. Right. And so it was like this domain of like of our laws playing out, not just even at the big at the big uh, federal level, but how do we make use of, you know, basic uh, not basic, but advances in technology when there's this conflict between what's the norm and what's the what do, what does the law say? And, you know, this also, I think, is going to play out in all kinds of areas where there's a lot of discretion, uh, police officers. Um, but also you might think of um, even even judges and, and the degree to which decisions made about uh, about legal decisions are as much about a norm of a range of acceptable punishments as what might actually guide rehabilitation or guide this particular case if you were looking at it more formulaic more formulaically so i I worry a little bit about you know this the the big picture of do we need more laws about presidential power or do we need to have you know just be better in who we elect as president is like this one question about norms and uh, a legal framework playing out but i think this is a and maybe we should take this up for a future podcast to your point because down on the ground level at local governing levels at the provision of public services in my opinion this is this is the question we're going to need to wrestle with is how much do we rely on the norms of firefighters police officers teachers nurses and when do we say nope like we need to be really specific about who gets what and what treatments and why and when and who is treated in what ways because we know that norms often are not equitable. Uh, not only are they maybe not as efficient and as effective as we'd want them to be, they're also biased. So yeah, there's all kinds of uh, interesting big picture questions I think this draws out. Yeah, yeah. Cool, man. Well, this was fun today. Um, we uh, Anything else you want to throw in before, uh, before I wrap us up, buddy? No, I think we hit it all. It's been a great discussion. Yeah, it's fun to kind of look at the specific case of what's going on now what some of the experts are saying, what some of the politicians are saying, how it fits in the broader framework, what this means for potential questions about structure of bureaucracy and structure of, of government. And then also this, you know, I think this question about what level of government should have what types of emergency powers and also at the level of government, which types of tasks or governance tasks we rely on norms versus uh, which ones we should lie on just uh, legal directives is all that's a lot for the 40 minutes that we chatted. It, it, it all comes back to organizations and systems, man, which is why we study what we study. <laughs> yeah, there is a no dearth of interesting questions uh, when you use those lenses. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, thanks everyone for listening uh, to the second full conversation here. We'll be back with you in about two weeks. We'll leave you in suspense as to the topic because we'll have to pick it first. And we will be back to you in two weeks. Hope you enjoy this format and look forward, uh, looking forward to having another conversation with you, buddy. Looking forward to it. Take care.